Psalm 41. Psalm 41. O Lord, be gracious to me. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one, and when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Thank you, Nihi, for reading for us this morning the most important words we will hear today. As we begin together to go into this significant passage, I'd like us to begin by considering something. I, I wonder if either you or somebody you have loved has ever had to spend time in a high-dependency ward. Now, I suspect that because we have a lot of young adults that many of you might right now be saying, I mean, wh why are you asking me this question? Because all of your friends are young and healthy and you're young and healthy and you can live with this illusion that you have freedom and independence except perhaps for now during travel restrictions and this season of COVID, life has become a little bit inconvenient for you. But for Sherry and I, we have great affection for high dependency wards. Because on June 15, 1990, Sherry gave birth to a healthy full-term baby boy who did not have full-term lungs. So immediately there was an emergency. His eyes were open. He was not making a sound. He seemed to be trying to breathe, but his lungs were not flexible. He couldn't take a breath. I was bundled out of the delivery room. Uh, even before his umbilical cord was cut, the doctor was on the phone calling a medevac. He was evacuated to another city, and there we were in complete dependence. And that little boy spent 11 days in a high-dependency ward, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A pediatric ICU nurse stood or sat by his incubator, watched his monitors, and we were desperate. For the first time in my life, 
None of my education could help me. My skill set was tapped out. We were absolutely dependent. And, and then on the 11th day, that little boy peed in his diaper. Now, this is not him, but this is an example of what an ICU ward for pediatric prayer looks like. In absolute dependent on 100% oxygen, suddenly God seemed to intervene and he began to live healthy and grow in his independence. Now, as you know, our theme all this year, and it will be next year, is radical dependence. And as we enter into Psalm 41 this morning, I just want to remind you that our church, because we have some men, members still alive on the day that this church was established, the ambition of the founders of our church was never that we become a social club for the theologically elite their ambition was, was never that we become some religious club that was made up of people who believed the Bible more than other people who belonged to other religious groups. That was never their ambition. Their ambition would be that this place would be a gathering place for the broken and wounded, a spiritual hospital. Friends, God calls us, our great physician calls us to dwell in the high-dependence ward. The problem is my flesh and my culture conspire against him and call me to live in the no-dependence ward because high-dependence is for those who are weak and helpless, and I am not weak, nor am I helpless. And so we struggle. We view the high-dependence ward for the people who need help, for those people, those people with insufficient personal ability, unable to help themselves. And because of this culture, God, rich in mercy, occasionally gives us the gift of trouble. He gives us this gift to remind us that more than excellence, he desires of us dependence more than our health he desires for us holiness and so this morning as we turn our attention to his word let's look at david's comfort in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter i was fascinated to read this week that in 2006, two neuroscientists at Princeton University, Lasana Harris and Susan Fisk, gathered 200 volunteers and put them in a brain scan and then showed them color photographs of people who belonged to different socioeconomic groups. Some were clearly rich, for example, businessmen in, in fancy suits or or. or, or sharp young women in cocktail dresses, and others were clearly not just poor, but destitute. And Harrison Fisk noted that brain activity changed. The human brain actually functioned differently depending on the image that was seen by these volunteers. So, for example, when volunteers looked at a photo of a wealthy young businessman, 
the part of their brain that involved recognition began to become more active. The medial prefrontal context was activated. So, so this cortex causes me to look at another human being and say to myself, that's my people. That, that's my species. It helps me distinguish between human beings and a toaster or a pigeon or, or a bowl of Maggie me. I look at a human being like this and I say, well, I, I can identify that person. If I needed to, I could ask him for directions. We might hang out. We might socialize. But on the other hand, when the volunteers were shown pictures of homeless people, that part of the brain that involves recognition and identification began to shut down. The medial prefrontal cortex was no longer activated. And instead, another part of the brain was activated that registered not identification, but dismissiveness and even, yes, even disgust. Instead of empathy, people sought to avoid it. It wasn't their people. It could have been a pigeon or a bowl of Maggie me. Just as I walk by people in the hawker centers not really paying attention to their food. So the human brain tends to do with people who are impoverished. David was a mighty warrior. He had killed a bear. He had killed lions. He had killed giants. He was a king, a man of extraordinary influence and privilege. But at this Psalm 41 point in his life, Something in his situation had radically changed. He no longer was a man of great influence. In this text, we realize that trouble had radically changed David's self-image and it had changed the way others looked at him. He was no longer mighty. He was no longer a king. He saw himself as impoverished. No strength, no health, no influence, and yes, no friends. And so in verse 1a, he cries out to God, blessed is the one, meaning the Lord, who considers, who meditates upon the poor, meaning the disenfranchised, the marginalized. David perhaps didn't consider them until he became them. And then he prayed a new prayer. Blessed, O God, are you, because you consider the poor. Now, you may have remembered from last week that whenever our modern translations put the word Lord spelt in all caps, it doesn't just mean master. It doesn't just mean despot. This word Lord in all caps represents a gap that was in the original manuscripts, a space where no word was. And, and remember, parchment in those days was so precious, there was no punctuation. There was no space between words. Every time there was a space, that represented a word that was so holy, it could not be spoken by human beings. It was so holy, it could not be named by human beings. It was the holy personal name of God. And notice in this text, David's sorrow was so deep, he lost all concern for religious convention. This was an intensely personal, incredibly intimate 
interaction. Three times in the three verses, David calls on the personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, in the day of trouble, you deliver. In the day of trouble, Yahweh, you protect. You restore blessing. In the day of sickness, Yahweh, when all despise me, you draw near, you sustain, you restore health. Before I was, you were. When all others desert me, you remain. Now, now I'm willing to acknowledge that maybe this message for you, listening online wherever you are, maybe it comes at an inconvenient time because you, you, your life is okay. And if that's the case, bless you. I, I desire that for you. But let me encourage you to bookmark this, chapter 41, because this is where those in need of high dependence will dwell. When God lends you the gift of trouble, there will come a day when you will need to cry out with David, Yahweh, friend of the helpless, draw near to me, have mercy. And so we come in verses 5 through 9 to David's lament. And remember, the Psalms lend relevance and credibility, dignity to grief. It is a part of life that is represented in God's Word. This Word is a God-authored song. Yes, it began in the heart of a man who was enduring great difficulty, but it's been preserved by the providence of God for over 2,800 years. It comes from his heart that we should be reading that even in this comfortable place. This is a psalm that could have been sung by Job, that has been sung by some of our precious church members. It describes the worst of all situations, a debilitating sickness made worse by the disloyalty of friends. And in verses 5 through 9, we can see that when his former friends looked at him, their medial prefrontal cortex registered nothing. They didn't identify with him. They didn't sit with him in empathy. They didn't call out courage and comfort in his heart. They viewed him with disgust. He may have been a homeless person, absolutely destitute in every way, no strength, no influence, and now not even any friends. We see them crying out, when will he die and his name perish? When will his name stop cluttering up my memory? Why do I even have to deal with a thought of this man? In verse 6, they began to spread bad news broadly. They sat with him, shared empty counsel, and then went away and gossiped about it. They whisper, he said, in verses 6 and 7 about me. And by the way, that word whisper has been provided by our interpreters for a Western audience because the word actually means to chant. 
And for most educated Western audiences, it's hard to, for us to imagine that some friends may have got an evil oracle to chant against their friend. It's hard for us to imagine that there would be gossip groups and they say, here, I've got this evil spell. Let's chant it against our friend. Let's curse him with this word. Verse 7, they took delight in the worst possible outcome. And this verse, verse 8, confirms what his friends were doing. They say a deadly thing has poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Why? They were so confident in the curse that they were speaking over and over. That word deadly in Hebrew is belial. The word thing is babir, which is not just a thing, it's a pronouncement. They were pronouncing an evil curse and poured it out on him. They were confident because of the power of evil and that curse David would never again rise. In verse 9, the final piercing pain, piercing pain. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, we see this from the filter of the New Testament. This is often viewed as a messianic psalm. However, in David's own context... In his life, right then, it was more than a friend. It was his precious son, Absalom, who had risen against his father to take his throne, who had eaten his dad's bread, who had now turned against him and turned his friends against him. This was his situation. Now, one of the reasons I... Love Charles Spurgeon is nothing to do with his theology or the fact that he was one of the greatest preachers God has ever produced. But it's because he was a man who was transparent about his own brokenness. He was a man often declaring his longing for heaven. And Jim Ryman has written or edited actually a a little book on Spurgeon devotionals. It's called Look Unto Me, meaning those who are troubled in difficulty, in challenge. Look God's way. Respond to the Lord. Well, in this book, I'm not sure what page, I can't give that to you, but on February 10, Spurgeon was sitting in his office writing in his personal journal by a comfortable fire. In those days, the home's had a fire in the office to keep it warm. They didn't have central heating. And there he sat, thinking about this moment of comfort. And then he wrote these words. When we have plenty of God's providential grace, or excuse me, blessing, we often have little regard for his grace. When our stomachs are full, we forget God. Thus being satisfied with the earth, we are content without heaven. Now, I I just wonder if this possibly may have happened to David. The palace had become his little Singapore, so safe. He had made it a paradise. Perhaps his heart had become satisfied. Perhaps his roots had become 
deep in the soil of the earth. And so God came, loving David deeply, to tug gently at the roots that held him in the soil of Jerusalem, perhaps to pull against the loyalty David had developed to earthly satisfaction, perhaps in his mercy to turn David's face afresh to the Lord. And this we see happens in David's petition. Verse 4, David cries out, As for me, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. You know what the sinner is really asking of God when he says, be gracious to me? He's saying, God, be unfair to me. Don't give me what my sins justly deserve. Justice may plead against me, but God, be gracious. Show mercy. Be unfair. I I don't know if you can sense the acute awareness David has that it was his sin that perhaps had brought him there. Sin not against his friends, but, but against God. You see, it's an unusual grief when you realize your tears are a result of God's hand, that, that God's hand has actually been turned towards you. This is why Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. You can see the source of his tears in Lamentations chapter 3 when he writes, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. God himself has driven and brought me into this darkness. Against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Verse 4 he says, God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Verse 5, he has besieged and enveloped me in bitterness and tribulation. Jeremiah wept because the recognition was it wasn't Babylon's hand, it was God's hand that had turned against him. And this again has messianic implications because Jeremiah suffered not for his own rebellion, but for the sake of the rebellion of God's people. It's the kind of agony that would cause any man to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then suddenly David pivots. In verse 10 he says, but you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Raise me up. Why? Why? So I can bless these? So I can model for them the proper Christian behavior? No, so that I can repay them. Oh, oh, did you think you always needed to have your sweet Jesus response ready for every trouble? Did, did you think you were capable of a proper theological framework when trouble comes? You think you could always respond in deep despair with the right attitudes, God can be trusted to show love and mercy even when sudden difficulty makes it impossible for you to find a godly response. This is God's word. And I can tell you personally, friends, 
I told at least one person this week, when trouble came to me, suddenly all the great wisdom I had for everybody else, I could not find for myself. Because trauma is profoundly, spiritually disorienting. I, I know you, you've heard me speak many times of my father. He and I had a bad relationship. Let me say it again, not because he was a bad father. I was not a good son. He, he struggled to know how to love a rebellious heart like mine, but he was godly. I grew up watching him read his Bible and hearing him pray. I learned everything about church planting, not from Bible school, but from my father who was not a pastor nor a church planter, but God just gifted him with such a gospel passion. And yet, in his last days, he was consumed by despair, losing his mind to vascular dementia, lying in a bed with bed sores that would not heal, not recognizing his children. We couldn't have a conversation. And, and then one moment... When all he had left was his Bible and his reading glasses, out of the fog of his dimension, he suddenly cried out from his bed, What is God up to? The God who loves us can be trusted with our despair that comes in the middle of trouble. And slowly he began to restore David's heart. Now, friend, if you have to be well before you run into the high-dependency ward, then you don't need God at all because he exists for, for that, and we exist for him. We cannot be fully human as he has designed us until we are fully dependent upon him. And so David says, this God, I know. You will delight in me, and my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Friends, he declared this in the middle of trouble. Not after it. So sure he was of God's faithfulness. Even in the fog of despair, he says, I know this. My enemy will not shout over me because you have upheld me, my integrity, which you have built in me, and you will set me in your presence forever. The most important revelation for David is this present trouble is temporary, but God has established me for eternity. His plan is not now, it is forever. This I know. And so he can close this song with praise. Blessed be the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel. Not just now, but from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And amen. This word amen is also spoken consistently by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke that we will return to beginning next week. This word amen 
in Hebrew means truth. So whenever Jesus in the gospel says, truly, truly I say to you, he's saying, amen, amen. Truth, truth, this is it. I say these words to you. And so ends the first songbook of the collection of songbooks that we call the Psalms. There are actually five books in the book of Psalms. And every book ends the same way, with a glorious, expectant doxology. No matter what the situation the psalmist finds himself in, every songbook ends in exactly the same way. In fact, if you are right now using an old school hard copy Bible, you may notice just at the end and before Psalm 42 begins, there is this subtitle, Book 2. Because Psalm 42 begins Book 2. Now, now we sometimes call the Psalms a Pentateuch of praise because the Psalms, every book in the Psalms relates to one of the five books of Moses that we refer to as the Pentateuch. The first Psalm book that we just did four chapters of, it comes from or reflects Genesis and humanity, the state of man. The, the second book from Psalm 42 to Psalm 72 is Exodus, and the focus all through these songs is on God's deliverance. And then Leviticus, the third psalm book from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89, focuses on God is our sanctuary. Numbers, God's rule, Deuteronomy, God's word, and every one of these psalms end in a very similar way. The first book we just read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The second book ends this way. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. True, true. And blessed be the Lord. The third book ends forevermore. Amen and amen. And then the fourth book ends. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. And then the final book ends in verse 6 of Psalm 150. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. So we suddenly realize that these psalms were written by a psalmist inspired by God's Spirit, given to the choir director, and that was meant to be interactive. They were singing the gospel to one another, even in the Old Testament. As the choir sang, the people responded antiphonally, Amen, truth. We don't do it in a Singapore church, but they do it in the African-American church. As the preacher preaches, the congregation shouts, Amen, pastor, truth. That's a truth bomb you just dropped on us right now. This was interactive, celebrating that no matter the circumstance in every one of these songs was worked out of the brokenness of life. They help us to sing in this middle broken space between where we are now and eternity. It reminds us of the gospel. The Lord is true. He is faithful. It's the song's 
that Job could have sung when at the worst of his suffering, in Job 1.21, he says, The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In 1987, I received a call from the Providence Hospital, which I felt was a bit unusual because it's a Catholic hospital. I'm, I'm not really sure why they called a Baptist church because there was a huge Catholic church in, in town, but they did. They, they called me, and, and whoever was on the line said, Pastor, we, we have a man who's in a hospice situation. He has no faith and no family. We wonder if you would come down and see him. And, and so I did. I went and saw him. I got his name. His name was Patrick. He was of Irish descendancy. So I assumed that's why he was taken to the Catholic hospital. But as I sat by his bedtime, bedside, he, he said, no, I, I don't believe in anything. Or maybe I do believe. I believe in nothing. I offered to try and track down his wife. His wife lived in the same city our son was medevac to. She didn't want to see him. I managed to track down his daughter. She lived in eastern Canada, the Atlantic provinces. She couldn't come. His son never responded, never picked up his phone. I wrote a letter. Perhaps by the time he got it, his father was dead. I sat by his bedside every day I went because I was a young pastor full of naive ambition that everyone I meet will respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. I sat by his bedside and I remember clearly the day I said, this is good news for you, Pat. And be, because you didn't choose for me to be here, God brought me here. He, he has suffered for, from all the brokenness in your life. He suffered for it. He comes not only to bring you near to God, but to bring you near to others. All your broken relationships, he will mend. If you just call on him, he will respond. His response was, I'm not going to call on God just because I'm in trouble. About a month later, after he said that, Pat died. He died alone. I wasn't there. A nurse wasn't there. No wife, no daughter, no God, no hope. Because even in a hospice situation, this man was too proud to be in a high dependency ward. Just like some people you know, and perhaps even some of us, we want to live and die in a no-dependency ward. It's the way our culture raised us. Our success has affirmed this for us. Friends, I, I wonder if you really do know that more than your personal comfort, God desires that we turn to him as a sanctuary for our deliverance. I wonder if we know that more than good test results, more than personal health, God desires that we pursue his pleasure, his blessing. 
I, I wonder if we know that more than professional reputation, more than a comfortable retirement, God desires that we turn into him afresh every day, running into the high dependency ward, celebrating that we are not just a little bit, but radically dependent upon him. I want to invite you to bow with me as we consider this reflection question. You may have remembered Nehi reading it earlier in our service. And perhaps you even thought, wow, that's a, that's a bit odd, that question. Is there, is there anything I need right now that I can't actually go get for myself? The purpose of this question is to remind each of us how absolutely independent of God we have learned to become. Oh, oh, sure, you've got leadership goals or vocational goals, and, and perhaps you're thinking, like, if I just try harder, with a little luck, I can achieve that. What, what ways, assuming that God sees everything about us, Assuming that he can answer our secret thoughts. What ways do my thoughts or my behaviors indicate a desire that I just want to be independent? I want to do what I want to do. Even though wearing masks is a bit of offense for me. Even social distancing bothers me. Because there's something in my heart that feels I am capable of living in the no-dependency ward. So then, friend, let me ask you this question. If you were to encounter some crushing disappointment this week, would it be somebody else's fault? And who would you turn to? If you were to enter a season of debilitating illness, is your heart fully dependent on God's faithfulness, His sustaining grace, His deliverance? Could you say with Job, could you say with David, these days are dark, blessed, be the name of the Lord. Father God, we thank you that even in the darkest days, when we feel that nobody wants to know us or notices our pain, you are there. We thank you that before we existed, you were and you created us for eternity. Not this momentary brokenness, but you created us forever. God, help us. Train us now in your gentle mercy to embrace living in high dependence toward you. Not for moments of contemplation, not even for the difficult times, but every day 
tune our hearts for high dependency so that you might grow us in holiness so that your pleasure might rest in us and so that you might be glorified. We ask this trusting you and we pray it in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.